All right, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening to this. This is the official Ideas for Us podcast. I am Clayton Luce Ferrara, the CEO of Ideas for Us, and it is a wonderful pleasure to be here today to bring you another discussion, an insightful look into the world of sustainability and all of the pieces that make sustainability certainly one of the most exciting areas of thought, of practice, of business for the 21st century. I am here today with not only our team member, Katie DeBerry, with Ideas for Us, but also Yuna Chowdhury. And she's here as the Dean for Humanity, Humanities and the Vice Dean for Interdisciplinary Initiatives at NYU. She's a pioneer in the fields of eco-theater and animal studies, among many other distinguished titles. Today, we're going to learn about Professor Chowdhury's take on art and literature from an, eco from an ecological perspective and the effectiveness of eco ecological art in addressing climate change and more. And I couldn't be more excited to have a discussion like this because I think that they are so extraordinarily important. So, Yuna, welcome. It's wonderful to have you today. Thank you, Clay. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be seeing Katie again. Mm -hmm. Katie and I worked together about five years ago, mm -hmm. and we were just uh, talking about how quickly time goes by. Uh, but it's it's uh, wonderful to be here and get a chance to uh, um, talk again about our common interests. Well, I'd love to just jump right into the discussion. You know, I have always said how important art and music and theater and culture is to any movement. And I think that especially because the modern environmental movement has its roots, especially in the 1960s and what led up to the Clean Air and Clean Water Act of the 1970s, Endangered Species Act and those types of things. Mm -hmm. it, it just makes sense to have a, a deep integration in culture. What have you seen in the last, especially as a, as a, as, as a professor and someone working with students, have you seen the rise of an interest in the environment, in arts, culture, humanities? Oh, yes, tremendously. I mean, when I first started working in this field, it, that was actually 30 years ago. Uh, and I think I was one of the first people to bring together environmental concerns with um, theater and performance. And uh, uh, I had trouble finding, you know, people to write for that art, for that, it was a special edition of a journal, Yale Theatre. Um, and it wasn't uh, easy to find uh, work to talk about. My take was that it isn't about make, just about making new work, uh, making, you know, new plays and new art. Uh, that's that, uh, th that's part of it, but equally important, is a kind of environmental uh, reading, a kind of environmental consciousness, ecological consciousness um, with which you approach uh, everything, um, all literature, all art, to see how it registers that dimension of human life. Um, we have just tended to be persuaded that art is about psychology, sociology, culture and politics. But human lives are also biological and geological, right? Uh, now, that, now that we're talking about the Anthropocene and climate, these things are geophysical forces. And these an abiding feature of human 
existence, always have been. And uh, there was this kind of psychosis in uh, modernity, you know, the last three or 400 years, where we kind of forgot that we are earthlings and that we live on this planet. And we became so um, confident of our ability to uh, shape the environment to our um, our preferences, our conveniences, that we then began to, I mean, we fooled ourselves into thinking that we don't live here. We actually live, you know, floating above it or living on Mars or something. Um, in, in the cloud, for sure. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So it was so much, for me, it was about, you know, just uh, coming back, coming down to mm-hmm. Earth uh, and recognizing that uh, these, the stories we tell about each other and that's the stuff of theater. Theater is about human stories. Uh, that those stories uh, have these other dimensions, and it's up to artists to make those dimensions interesting and uh, something that you'd be curious about, and that you you know want to understand and and uh, enjoy and and laugh about, and and you'd want to connect it with the things that really matter to you, like your feelings, like your desires. Uh, that you would open yourself up to, um, you know, you basically widen um, the, uh, the 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 frame of uh, what you think is relevant to you, um, to to your good life. Mm, absolutely, you know, I think that um, one of the things that really strikes me when I reflect on just the history of ideas for us. We started in a college dorm room at the University of Central Florida back in 2008. And back then, sustainability was already very much an academic discipline. It was already a long time since the um, uh, even uh, Kyoto Protocol and Montreal Protocols that had been put in place. And it was already very much so a, a topic of discussion but it still felt like trying to sell computers in the 80s, you know, and uh, I remember going around and meeting with foundations and business leaders and elected officials, you know, as early as 2011. And in doing so, you know, we were kind of saying, you know, we promise this sustainability thing is going to be really big, uh, you know, trust us. And fast forwarding now 15 years later, and it's tough to turn on the television and not hear about climate change. Uh, Certainly as someone who consumes the arts and loves art, I've always seen it as a wonderful kind of mirror as to the times. And I'm curious to see, how do you feel the discussion that's taking place in art and theater today adds to that kind of global consciousness that we're having awaken about climate change. What do you think is the role of this theater in art and, and, and how do you see it shaping that today? Great. Okay. The, that's a, actually a huge, huge question. And in some ways, let me go back to your first question, which I didn't fully answer, which is what what have I seen in terms of changes around this mm-hmm. topic? Um, and I, as I said, I've seen in extraordinary changes both within academia and within art practice. So we've now got uh, whole fields of uh, humanities and of course sciences and social sciences devoted to um, 
you know, this subject, the environment. Um, within human, you know, we've got environmental humanities, but within that, there are subfields like uh, blue humanities, which is all about oceans and sort of the history and, and the materiality of oceans and the imagination of oceans. And then we've got uh, energy humanities. Uh, they, they're just, you know, a whole lot of uh, approaches coming from all uh, the disciplines, philosophy, history, literary studies, cultural studies, uh, performance studies, uh, recognizing that, uh, you know, we've got a lot to learn and say um, about that, that larger world, the more that what I call the more than human world. So that's happened. At the same time, in the arts and in literature, you've got an explosion of, um, uh, you know, interest and um, activity, art activity, people writing novels about this, lots of poets working with uh, those those ideas. So it's it's been, you know, as we would say, it's a sea change. Everything has uh, now. And that, of course, is fantastic. That's great that, you know, this is, uh, we've gone past that stage that you were talking about when you started and when I started, which was, you know, you really felt like you were pushing it uphill. So now, yes, it's true that every time you turn the television on, you hear about climate change. The problem is that, um, is that we're still talking about the environment and the uh, climate as a problem. Whereas what we need to do is shift our perspective and shift the paradigm to fully understand that that's not the problem, we are the problem. Or rather a particular uh, attitude that we've cultivated for the last three, 400 years is the problem. And that attitude, you know, in, with one word you could summarize as anthropocentrism. Uh, sure. with human exceptionalism, uh, which is really a, a, a profound misunderstanding of reality because it, it believes that somehow this one species can exist by itself or can, can exist, um, you know, uh, independently of what's going on with the other species. So that anthropocentrism is the real thing we should be talking about. You know, it's a question of, of philosophy, of vision, of, of values. And to me, it's also a question of um, desires. Like we've been taught to want things from this anthropocentric perspective. You know, we've been taught that what we should want is things for ourselves, whether it is material things or things like education, literature, culture, all the things I want, you want. Uh, but those are all, that's all comes from a kind of extractive approach to uh, to existence, which is that you come here as individuals and then we try to get as much uh, as we can. Whereas another way of thinking entirely would be that we come here and then we, we are in this web of connections and we have this opportunity to interact with that and to thrive with that and help others thrive. And we would have that attitude, that, that value system, that perspective, if we hadn't been schooled in anthropocentrism, if we already knew just from, from childhood on that we're not freestanding, you know, singular uh, um, autonomous subjects, um, you know, we get cold, we get hot. I mean, we're just constantly affected by other things. Of so course. To me, 
that's what is way lagging behind clay. We're nowhere near that. And a lot of the talk, I mean, um, you know, not to be, um, and it's, I think what I'll say is controversial, but a lot of the talk about sustainability can sometimes be like a Band-Aid or a red herring um, because it doesn't ask the question, sustaining what? What are we trying to sustain? Which system? Which way of life? Um, you know, what do we mean by sustainability? So that's one sort of big thing that I'm uh, seeing and I'm concerned with. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot is that, uh, you know, as a, as a uh, professor of English, <clears throat> I'm always interested in what what's hidden, what people are not talking about, what's being uh, backgrounded. And I think one of the things that's being backgrounded is the fact that the real reality we're facing, the real problem is not climate change, but suffering. The fact that there's going to be, you know, without doubt, there's going to be tremendous amounts of suffering on a scale we've never seen, but also it will be, while we know it's inevitable, it'll also be utterly unpredictable. So it won't be, you know, something we can use our algorithms for or our, our, yeah. our normal ways of planning. So where does that leave us? That leaves us needing to develop entirely new kind of ethics and practices of care uh, to prepare ourselves to just take care of each other and take care of those around us when when we encounter the suffering, which we know we will, you know? Of course. You know, I, I like to think of us, and I bring kind of a couple different perspectives into this. I think my foundation is that I'm a biologist, right? But, you know, uh, us as a species uh, are not necessarily the best at being proactive. We're very good at being re reactive. And yes. in fact, most people are the same way at the individual level. And after all, our societies is a conglomeration of individuals. And when we're so good at being reactionary, I think the reaction that we're facing is the one where us as human beings, as an animal, had a very, very tough time playing by the rules of the rest of nature. And we have literally shaped our entire world to thwart off death and suffering as best as we can, only to open us to new kind of levels of suffering and unfortunately death, especially when one looks at the 20th century, right? The bloodiest century in human history. And the fact that the 21st is riding on the heels of that and, and is certainly not looking rosy already. Um, you know, there's just a lot of aspects here. And I'm so glad that you brought it to suffering because I think that ultimately that's the greatest claim to fame that sustainability can make. And that true sustainability is an aspect of lowering the degree of suffering, right? Because there'll always be suffering, whether you're a system of animals or a system of human beings, uh, the ecosystem itself. In fact, with uh, heterotroph and autotrophic individuals, it's predicated on the suffering of someone to feed someone else, right? But I think that with sustainability, this aspect of kind of re-engineering how our systems work to benefit the most people and do the least damage is something people can get behind but a lot of times i think that and and this is this is something i'm really curious to to learn about from you is i feel as though 
people have a uh, kind of uh, kind of fear or non-attraction to some kind of environmental content in art and media and theater because they see it as very dark and gloomy. Yes. And it often focuses on the unbelievable destruction and what will happen if we do nothing to thwart the worst of climate change. And that's a tough thing to leave your stressful job, drive to a theater on a Thursday afternoon and sit down and enjoy a, a 90 minute uh, performance on. Yes. So I'm always interested in this concept of kind of reframing what sustainability looks like. And I've seen this done well in something called the solar punk movement recently. And the solar punk movement being this kind of artistic, graphical, novel, comic book or visual art that looks at regular stories, but being portrayed in a sustainable future where it kind of almost like in the 1950s and 60s, the vision of the future world was incorrect in how it looked at what life would be like if we had unlimited energy, which is what people really thought the future was going to be like post A-bomb. And you look at that, but what we really had is unbelievable, accessible, cheap data as opposed to unlimited energy. So here we are as this animal with something in our pockets that literally contains all human data that we can access at any time. And we use it for very uh, paleolithic reasons, usually during the day. Um, but uh, I'm just so interested to, 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 to learn about the positives of some of this art form uh, and that it's not all doom and gloom. But that's my whole story. That's my whole thing. I've always been about that. People cannot act from fear. Um, people act from love and joy and desire um, and, uh, you know, at creativity. I mean, creativity is based on, on making things, you know, thrive. So, yes, so... Um, this, this thing about how the topic of climate has been um, associated with feelings of uh, doom and gloom, guilt, sadness, despair, uh, all this is, this is related to um, what I was talking about earlier, which is we've been, we've been encouraged to think that the climate and nature and ecology is a problem. And, the, and it's, a, it's our enemy. I mean, they talk about the war on climate change. The problem is not, uh, you know, that's not the problem. The problem is that we have thrown the climate uh, out of whack in a certain way, in the sense that we've accelerated the geophysical systems of transformation uh, in, in a way that's going to uh, impact us sort of dramatically by these extreme weather and by uh, rise in temperature, rise in sea level, all this. But that's, you know, that's what we've done. It's not something, it is, you know, the, the climate is not your enemy. So for a long time, uh, Katie may have mentioned, I work on a uh, um, creative collaborative with another person, the two of us now, and it's called Dear Climate. And this started in 2008, we started it. And it was all about, you know, making friends with the climate. The climate is your friend. Uh, one of my favorite uh, artists is this artist, Pear. Um, 
Annie Sprinkle and Beth Stevens, who call themselves the ecosexuals. And they're all about making love to the planet. They said, instead, you know, just change up the metaphor instead of Earth as mother, think of Earth as lover. For me, it's always been Earth as friend. And that is a very capacious concept, friend, because you know, you know how many different feelings we have about friends. We have we have best friends. Friends with benefits. Friends with benefits, that's Annie's thing. Uh, we have um uh you know uh frenemies. We have the yep. you know friends you love to hate. Um, you know, and sometimes we hate our friends. But so that's a kind of a capacious concept within which to maybe make make up some new stories about our lives, mm-hmm. um, but without losing that intimacy um, that we go to the theater for. We we don't go to the theater to be lectured on, you know, um, pollution levels in the atmosphere. We we go to the theater to understand what it be, what it means to be this weird little thing a human being. You know, that's what we go. And, and we figure it out by looking at each other and listening to what each other is saying. And so if these stories were, con- you know, uh, intrinsically connected with that, which more and more they are, um, you you know, you'd begin to uh, uh, ha- have a different um, set of um, emotions and affects related to uh, climate. So for me, it's about changing hearts and minds but it's also very much about changing uh, emotions and desires. And so there was Dear Climate. Um, Another thing that I'm part of is called Climate Lens, which is uh, another collective. And uh, the the interesting story there is very much what you were just saying, Clay, is that when we got together, we were all artists or educators who wanted to work on issues of uh, environment and and climate. And, in the first 10 minutes of our retreat, 10, 15 minutes, it became so clear that all of us were dealing with the same thing, that every time we opened our mouths to other people, they thought they knew what we were talking, they thought they knew exactly what we were going to say, and that was going to be depressing. It was going to be depressing as hell. And that, you know, they would feel like they're being guilted into adding one play about climate to their season, and then they just want to forget about it because it's so fucking depressing. Right. So um, that's when we realized that that that's the problem right there is that, you know, we've identified the wrong problem. Uh, The problem is not that. The problem is, is, you know, attitudes, paradigms, behaviors, values. And that's actually always very interesting to us is to start looking at ourselves and saying, you know, where would be wrong? What, What have we been up to? How did we come to, you know, behave and think like this? What's the history of this? Who made us do this? So another thing I'd say, Clay, in response to your uh, the question you were asking about, or the, the, the way you framed it about how humans are this animal that is reactive rather than proactive. Um, and so we've the word that I would always want to put pressure on is the word we. When we say hmm. we, that we've done this, we we have to just step back and, you know, in our... Uh, climate lens, we have one platform that says disaggregate the human. Who has the power to give us which messages? Who has who has the power to frame those messages? You know, uh, who are the ones who have no power at all and are not over-consuming at all? 
which is a huge percentage of the we. A huge percentage of the we are not misbehaving and, and over, in living in excess. Not at all. They're living on, you know, trash heaps. Um, so that's, of course, the, the kind of political uh, framing that's very important to many people in, uh, in this field now. It's never been my point of focus um, because I've been more interested in emotions and in uh, um, desire. Um, uh, and I've also, uh, I just, you know, just like personally have a kind of uh, profound belief in humor. I just, I think it is a miracle, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the thing I love the most. I love, you know, being made to laugh. Uh, it it gives us a great chance, I think, to try out and test out different possibilities, right? Yeah. Very often humor is about realization and it's about the absurd. It's also about uh, possibilities and the arrival and the pathway to them. So I, I completely agree with you. And in fact, I'm so glad you went into this because I wanted to, to talk about humor in this, you know, and, and maybe my questions are a little... Uh, picked in trying to steer to this place, but I'm so excited by the potential for new stories in climate and new stories in environmentalism. We're a very optimistic organization. You won't find a single doom and gloom aspect anywhere on our website, our marketing, our media, the tone and who we are and how we speak about things. And that largely comes from our team's perspective too. Right. We wouldn't be doing this work if we didn't clearly know that it was having a positive benefit in the world, even and, and also to have the humility to know that no one organization, person, group of people, country can solve this problem. Right. It really is a collective effort. And when I say we, I mean, the human species right, yeah. is, is largely what I refer to when I when I talk to we. And there's, of course, an endless endless amount of diversity within a person, let alone, uh, you know, the almost 8 billion of us, uh, you know, plus in the world. So humor is so important. News stories is so important. Um, how do you think COVID has affected all of this? Certainly theater suffered tremendously during COVID. Lots of things went online, though, and opened up a new opportunity for people to see and to hear things they wouldn't have normally seen. How do you think COVID plays into some of these things? I mean, I think all the things that you just said, um, it, you know, afforded new kinds of uh, experiences and innovations and uh you know, we had to pivot and um, cope with certain things that were hard for us, like, you know, how to live without going to a restaurant six times a week. That was my problem. Or, you know, not being able to go to a bar at the end of the day. You know, I, th I thought I would just, that's not possible. I cannot survive. Um, I'm just kidding. You can edit that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so... Uh, so there was, of course, all, all those changes. Uh, I also think that we it'll be a while before we fully understand what happened to us with the pandemic. Uh, I think, you know, we're always uh, so quick to theorize it and to come up with lessons and all, which, we, of course, you know, that's what we do as humans. But, but I think it's also uh, maybe it was a kind of species trauma uh, our, 
that we will eventually understand its uh, long uh, shadow. Um, the other thing, though, is that I this goes back to my other um, main topic, you know, about being sensitive to or being um, uh, present for uh, each other in context of suffering. So I think that's one thing we saw, right? I mean, so many people just behaved in ways that were so absolutely wonderful, you know, taking care of being, being generous and taking care of each other and communities and all that. Um, then there were others, especially politicians who didn't behave so well. But um, so I think in a way you could think it was almost a rehearsal for some of the things that were gonna, uh, you know, gonna happen to us. Um, yes, As you Absolutely. know, things like what happened during Hurricane Sandy in New York, that was a rehearsal. And, you know, so, some of some some other people, many of the people behaved very well and maybe discovered certain capacities that they have, um, but that doesn't get talked about so much. What gets talked about is, you know, well, other things that sh everything should be talked about, of course. Um, so now to come to your question about art, this is what I think art can do. It can be a space of rehearsal mm -hmm. where we get Absolutely. to rehearse these futures, not just yep. the ones that are going to be difficult and challenging, the suffering, but also the ones that will help us thrive. The, the, the world that we'll need to bring into existence. We have to imagine what the world will be. Uh, yes. You know, uh, once we go through whatever this period is going to be that we're going to go through as a species, we have to imagine the other world. And it, it can only just be imagined. There's no way of knowing what it's going to be, right? So it, it's entirely an imaginary construct. And of course, you know, artists are supposed to you know, have a special purchase on imagination. So it's a, it's a, to me, the role of art now is to be uh, courageously speculative about the future, uh, about yep. future worlds and make future worlds um, and, you know, get people to come in and play in them. Um, and, you know, when I say we don't want gloom and doom, we, we don't, but that is part of, that's part of, of our is. story now, right? So Of course uh, it is. Yeah. You know, the, the, one of my mantras I get from uh, Naomi Klein's book on climate uh, change called This Changes Everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, uh, everything is affected by this. Every, everything, not just art, but everything. So of course art is affected uh, and should be, and should be taking it on board. But so is everything else. So is, you know, how we eat, where we live, uh, what we read, uh, supply chains, what we're going to be able to buy. All, all this is, uh, you know, related to climate. Climate isn't about nature or about species. It's about everything. It's, a, it's the system that governs everything, right? I mean, for sure. I mean, I've always seen art as a, and 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 saying art is kind of the blanket term for the creative uh, exertions of humans solo or in groups, right? Yeah. And like, you know, we have an extraordinary imagination 
from as far as we know, unlike any other animal, right? Yeah. We're constantly crash testing ideas in our minds and imagining things and uh, much to our own fault, imagining scenarios that may or may not be real, right? And dealing with the consequences of those thoughts, you know? And so all of this is definitely a potential rehearsal and an exploration. And that's what makes me always think that art, music, literature exists on this kind of razor's edge of the new horizon or frontier. Okay. And that's what my attraction in our organization ideas for us has been to these types of things. We came up with a program called Ideas for Arts. And arts was a, 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 a kind of all capitalized and would break down to artistic representation towards sustainability. And what we essentially did was invite any kind of imaginative expression to have a artistic representation towards sustainability. And people would make sculptures or create music or do dances or all different kinds of things. And this was, of course, when we were in college, but we even managed to rope in the local art museum. Uh, and hold a, a kind of voting competition of what people thought was the best, uh, the best uh, piece that was created in a, a really cool sculpture of um, a fish with uh, uh, like uh, ocean plastic and things like that entangling it wound up winning. But I, I remember sounds like Banks. Banksy's. Uh, yeah, uh, I remember Ariel. You wrote your paper on that, Katie. <laughs> on, on Banksy? On Banksy's um, uh, parody of Hollywood? With that oh, that's movement. right. Oh, Dismaland. Yes. It's his parody of Disneyland. Yes. yes. Did, that's what I heard about. That was from your paper. Your paper was so brilliant. <laughs> yes. That theme park yeah, yeah. It was in the UK. Yeah, it was pretty haunting, it <laughs> especially was, being yeah. from Florida. It's like... um. <laughs> messed up version of Disney World here. Yeah, I think that while we were having our class at that time was when Banksy was driving that bus around with the uh, stuffed animals that you, and then he would park the bus and the stuffed animals would be leaning out of it and screaming. They were like, they were, you know, it was the sound of slaughter, slaughterhouses. Oh and he'd be parking it on, on Bleecker Street. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Screaming <laughs> animals. Was, you know, so uh, you know that that kind of really in your face, uh, angry and yet um, open kind of intervention. Sorry, sorry, I interrupted yeah. you there, Clay. I got, I got. Uh, no, no, I love it. Last from the past. <laughs> I was going That's to ask fantastic. you eventually um, how. And living in New York City like helps you in your in your job helps you think in in these ways and expand your mind more ecologically and um, because it seems so antithetical to that but then there are those instances where artists are doing these things that it's, it's so yeah. in your face you can't ignore it yeah well, and also now I have to just bring in a little theory here, eco-theory, which is that one of the platforms, one of the foundational ideas of the work in eco-environmental humanities is to contest the boundary of nature versus culture. And on that boundary also sits the division between cities and 
that green stuff (laughs) (laughs) or cities and nature as if there's no nature in the cities. So uh, we, you know, Donna Haraway has this beautiful term, nature cultures, uh, and it's like techno cultures. Uh, We all inhabit nature cultures of different kinds. You know, whether we're living in suburbs or in the wilderness or here in a city, it's a nature culture of a different kind. So the, the city nature culture has this feel of being very alienated from other species uh, and from, you know, from um, vegetation, from growth, and unless you go to the park, something like that. But so in my teaching, one of the things I've tried to emphasize is to uh, get get us all to notice how, in fact, it's it's more than that. There's you know that there's there's species and stuff and green stuff and brown stuff you know all around us. We in the, the planet is everywhere. You know the uh, environmental reality is everywhere. So um, so that's one thing. The second is that I I think a lot of people also now argue that cities are a very sustainable. Um, mode because you know you walk, uh, you have neighborhoods, especially cities with smaller neighborhoods. That that would be sure. It condenses resources, yes. and and shipping can be made more efficient. Distribution channels, energy, yeah. water, food, so etc. Exactly. Imagination of the future might, in fact, have cities uh, or, or smaller cities or something as a very central element of it. So that I, I really like about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the thing to realize is that there is no place in the world that is not profoundly polluted. You know, if you go up to the top of Mount Everest and breathe, you're breathing in plastic. Definitely there. Definitely there. But you breathe, I mean, if the air is has been polluted and the water, uh, you know, contains um, uh, plastic particulates, then of course. it doesn't matter how, you know, uh, what a pristine environment you're living in. So, you know, one of the things that happens to people like me who teach about this topic is that, you know, you're with young people for whom this is not theoretical at all. This is really looming as like, it's terrifying. How, how am I going to live? How am I going to, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, what should I do? So the students often ask me that, you know, and uh, I mean, I feel like I should come up with some kind of a, something to offer as an idea to them. Of course, they'll have lots of other things because they're taking other classes, and you know, but the thing I offer now that I've started saying is just this, that um, if I were young now, I would just, wherever I was, I would just root myself into that place as deeply as possible. I would learn everything I could about that place, about its, you know, geology, biology, where the water comes from, what grows there, what doesn't, what the political system is, who's in power, uh, what are the uh, populations, everything. I would just, and, and try to know as much about it as you can so that when needed, you will have information and tools to to take care of each other to take care that's of what we do <laughs> that that's that's very much so you know the approach that we try to inspire in our organizers and communities right it's after all understanding that ecology 
right, also includes all of these things in humanity too, right? Living and non-living, right? But our associations with yeah. one another, the systems that we live in, uh, you know, in, in some places very much so socioeconomic caste systems that people yeah. are in. And then you've got all of the different layers of, uh, you know, injustices that people face and, and the work in progress that this certainly takes. Well, one thing I'm really just also very eager to ask you is because you've got such a concept of arts in this realm and because you're also in the city of New York, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what are some artistic projects that are exciting you right now about environmentalism or climate? What's the kind of lay of the land right now and particularly some things that are just, you know, checking all the boxes for you? Oh, lots of stuff, really. I'll just talk about two that I happen to encounter or be connected with, but because there's just so much, and I have a very busy job, so I'm not keeping up with everything out there, uh, because you know I have to keep up with theater because I love it so much. So I go to theater, but you know I'm not keep going to all the, the galleries and everything. But um, one is this piece that I've been very closely involved with. It's called 36.5, a durational performance with the sea by Sarah Cameron Sunder. It's an international eco-art uh, environmental action uh, performance. And it's, Clayton, from many of the things you were saying, you would just love this because it's so much about uh, using art to make beauty as well as take action. Mm. as well as create spaces of connection, of, you know, connection between experts or people who need to be connected in order to uh, make their place better, to make uh, to create more sustainability where they are. So I, I can't describe the whole thing, but she's, she did it. Um, uh, the, it's, it's a very simple um, action, which is that she goes into the uh, water. She stands on the shore at low tide, um, and waits till the tide comes in all the way. Uh, she stands in the water for a full tidal cycle. It comes up to her neck and then it recedes. So she stands there for 13 hours. And she wow. made a promise to do it on the continent, on the uh, shores of every continent, and she did. So she did it in Bangladesh, in Brazil, in Kenya, in uh, Aotearoa, and of course, Europe and America. And she, the final one was in America last month. And I've been with her. Um, she's a dear, dear friend of mine. I just love this work. And I did a collection of um, essays on it for the, for the journal Resilience, which is the Journal of Environmental Humanities. So um, that that's a, a work that, uh, you know, seems so simple. It seems like, you know, it's just this image of uh, the solitary figure, you know, being engulfed and then revealed. But of course, once you start thinking about it, it's so much more. But the for her, the most important thing is everything she has to do to make it happen. All the communities she has to get together. And so it's a practice and a rehearsal of care. Because like when she goes, she goes alone. She you know, tries to get an invitation from somebody in that country. So, she, you know, one art group or one artist or somebody. And then she goes there and stays there for a few months and keeps meeting people, starts, you know, locating the, the place and then working with the folks 
take care of that place, you know, the beach cleanup people, whoever it is, whatever they're dealing with. And suddenly she has this community uh, who are all, you know, helping her do this totally weird thing. You know, I mean, when she did it in Africa, she had to go to this village and the village elders were like, you know, they wouldn't let her do it because they were worried for her. They thought she's too, too tiny. She shouldn't do this. But then, you know, they, and then they danced through the whole thing. So it's extremely beautiful, extremely powerful and totally imaginative and open-ended. So that ticks a lot of boxes for me, you know. Uh, and partly, it's wonderful. yeah, and it's, you know, the, the putting your body on the line in a way, you know, just, just saying, uh, I'll stand here. I'm going to stand and I'm going to look, I'm going to look and let the ocean speak to me. It's called a durational performance with the sea. And she calls the sea her performance partner. How wonderful. Yeah, so that's an ex a great example. If you want more, I can tell you one more that I just I interviewed. Please. Yeah, I interviewed an artist named uh, David Updike, who ha currently has a um, show, I mean, a, a piece uh, up, a mural up in the Climate Museum. Um, Climate Museum has a pop-up right now in on Wooster Street. And they're a wonderful action group as well, uh, Clay. They also have this commitment to do more than advocacy. Uh, they work with artists, it's called a museum, but they get their audiences to uh, engage with that art, looking for action, looking for opportunities for action. You know, very, very wonderful work. And so David Updike is this artist. Uh, he's a, a sculptor and painter. Uh, but he has a series of works about uh, postcards, his collections of postcards. Uh, this one is called Someday All This. And the previous one was called This Land. And it's a big mural. And it's all these postcards that he connects with paints. You know, he paints like bungee cords that connect various things. It's very hard to describe, but uh, it is so rewarding to uh, go in and engage with. There's so much to see and think, and it's about it's about our world. It's about our land. It's a lot of it is about America. It's about how we in America think about land, how we think about nature, how we think about travel, what we've done to this land, um, how we feel about that. Um, so you know, I had a conversation with her um, and with an audience uh, last week, I think, and. Uh, it was just great. He's he's uh, just brilliant and so, so talented and imaginative. So that's another one. I don't know if you make connect, put links in your podcasts, uh, but, you know, David Updike in the Climate Museum and then 36.5, a durational performance with the sea would be two good ones to, uh, you know, tell people about. I'm looking at it now. Um... <laughs> Yeah, this this reminds me because we we just had we have a community environmental think tank called the Hive, and a couple months ago when we did it, we had um, I think he was a former Disney Imagineer, and he makes postcards that look like these that are very like old uh, old Florida visit Florida, and they are you know they have that shininess to them, but they also portray these like horrific scenarios. Oh, wow. so, yeah. yeah. Wow. 
I must, if you send me the name of this person or his work, because I'll, I'd like to send it to David. I'm sure Absolutely. he'll be interested in hearing about uh, another use of postcards, because he uses real, you know, uh, vintage postcards that you can buy off eBay. Very beautiful ones, yeah. uh, but but sort of horrifying because they, you know, they're from the 30s and 40s and 50s, and they, their ideas of what was a good life. Yes, <laughs> highways and <laughs> all that. Exactly, big bridges, yeah. <laughs> dams, dams. <laughs> yeah, we actually, um, we, we're um, starting like a holiday giving campaign. And I started to think about sending out postcards, but I'm like, they have kind of a negative connotation for me now because of all of these art projects that yeah. feature them in, in these know. warped ways. So. Yeah. Well, this reminds me of another artwork that I love, which is, um, and I can't remember the artist's name, but this is a person who would write uh, letters to the ocean uh, and mail them. You know, he would just put them in the mail and then the, the letters would come back, you know, with postal signs saying, return to sender. This person, this as a person is not, this addressee is not accepting uh, mail anymore, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and then he would make these beautiful murals with these, uh, with, just with the envelopes, the cancelled out envelopes. Um, and, you know, again, I loved that idea of addressing, you know, partnering, being friends with, mm -hmm. uh, with the more than human world, not thinking of it as the problem or the thing that's going to, you know. We did this uh, project project. Uh goodness, probably 2013 called Project Rethink. And we mm -hmm. wanted to kind of reframe how people thought about things by creating these metal signs that looked just like street signs, but had different environmental messages. And we went and stuck them all around Lake Eola Park here in Orlando, just kind of like our downtown areas park with a big fountain and things like that. And, uh, you know, we had things that said stuff like, you know, this used to be a forest, you know, and, and all of this kind of messaging to kind of blend in with the landscape there. And it was pretty cool. You know, of course, it was one of those kind of guerrilla projects where we didn't ask for permission and oh, just kind of oh, did it anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, it's that's funny. I think like postcards, letters, and then signs, signposts, and it so happens in my Dear Climate project, we just did a project with signposts and we were commissioned to do it by Appalachian State University. They And so it wasn't guerrilla, it was, uh, you know, we put these signs up all over campus, uh, but, you know, the and they were like um, trail markers with arrows and there were three in each one. And instead of pointing to things like the science building and the you know, humanities building or dining hall, they had um, enigmatic, uh, they had three enigmatic phrases, each one. Many of the phrases were titles of important books from our, from our field. From the, you know, like the, uh, one of the most important books to me that I teach a lot is called The Great Derangement. Uh, it's called Climate Change and the Unthinkable by Amitabh Ghosh. So hmm. one of the signposts said, great, you know, had three, uh, three arrows, great derangement, uh, major catastrophes, small screw-ups. So, you know, they, they had all those three types of, and, and then we activated the, 
each of those um, by having you know things you could do uh, in relation to them. But in a way, it was a walking. We called it a walking curriculum. You were walking and you were coming across the things, and then on each of the signposts, uh, there was a little sign that said, "What do I need to know for the planet to thrive?" Hmm. So it was about being in the university. You know, you're on a campus. What do you need to know? And then so all these, uh, basically, you need to, you know, ask yourself what you need and, and you know, what's around you. So uh, that's called Signs, Wonders, Blunders. And it's, mm. on the, it's on the Dear Climate website. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. A lot of fun. Well, Yuna, thank you so much for this conversation. I mean, I feel like it could probably go on for hours. Uh, you know, I, I think there's just so much to be said about this area. And I'm just so pleased that you're, uh, you know, able to to teach and share these things with students. And, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, and, and to kind of just take it all in. And um, remember my essay from 2018. Thank you for yeah. remembering that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're pretty very impressive. Forget Katie. <laughs> I remember you with great affection and oh. enjoyment. Oh. We had so much fun. That was a wonderful class. Thank you yeah. so much, Gina. Oh. And your oh. class really did, uh, in a roundabout way, lead me here. So I do have you to thank for uh, being in this job that I love. So thank to you. Hear. Thank you both. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for your beautiful work. We need we need so many different people from all walks of life active in this, not just environmentalists, you know. Really one of our guiding lights was to to be the environmental organization for not just environmentalists, yeah. you know, and and artists and and thinkers and business people and elected officials and all of those things are often needed even more. So thank you for being part of that and bringing, uh, you know, this amazing perspective of just what theater, art, music can do for just human progress. So thank you. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you all very much. We greatly appreciate the discussion today. And that is the close of our official Ideas for Us podcast. I am Clayton Lewis Ferrara, and we also have Katie DeBerry, our Media and Marketing Director. Thank you so much. Catch you on the next one.